0: Because we are going to do some work here in this room this morning. I'm very excited um, for many reasons. One, to see all of you here, um, but to see one person in particular here this morning. Um, If you call Resonate home, you may know um, that our our normal teaching pastor, Josh, um, has been on a a hiatus for a few months, and um, he's back this morning. He's back this morning, and we're very thankful um, to hear from him. so if you, are, if you are visiting, know that um, normally um, Josh is speaking, but he's, he's been away for a little bit, um, and he's been on a journey all his own, and God has been working mightily um, in his life. And so why don't we welcome up Josh, who's gonna be sharing with us this morning, give him a big welcome back. Good morning, Josh. Hi, guys. Good morning. Woo! What have you been up to for three months? Um, Hi, my name is Josh. I'm the normal teaching pastor here. Um, As a lot of you know, I've been off uh, for three, three and a half months now. Both Chelsea and I have been taking some time to step back. um, And it's been amazing, and it's been restful, and it's been healing, and it's been difficult, and it's been excruciating. um, And I've been bored. So I'm very glad (laughs) to be back with you all. I have so much to share with you that when I was trying to write this, um, it was about an hour and a half long. So I cut it down to a cool hour and 15. No, I'm kidding. Um, we'll be out of here in like 45, 30 minutes. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just been an insane journey um, that Chels and I have been on uh, and mostly, selfishly, uh, that I have been on. Um, and so I want to share that with you, but I also don't want to miss the chance to do church. Uh, This is not the me hour, we're still at church, and so we're still going to do a sermon, something I miss so greatly. We're going to do that, we're going to dive in, I'm going to share a lot of different things, we're going to talk about a poet named Rumi, Uh, we're going to have a poetry reading, Um, we're going to talk about a psalm that's really depressing, Um, I'm going to talk about my fear of hummingbirds, and uh, we're going to talk about Domino's Pizza to end it. Does that sound good? (laughs) Um, And all of this, guys, I ask for grace. What I'm going to share with you is a little heavy. Um, and especially for anyone that's dealt with addiction, that's dealt with alcoholism, that's dealt with anything like that, I'm going to dive into some of those topics. Um, not to give you a teaser, you're all to you be waiting until the end. That's not going to happen until the end, so just so you know, the juicy details come at the end. Don't leave your seats. Don't go to the bathroom. You will miss it, and I will never speak of it again. Um, uh, but I just want to ask for grace, um, and so as I pray right now, I'm going to pray over not just this morning, but the future moving towards. Uh, towards greatness for this church, towards greatness for this community, uh, and bringing us closer as a family. um, And uh, know this too, I'm open, I'm an open book. Um, If you know me, you know I will tell you pretty much anything about my life, um, except for this one major thing which I'm about to tell you. So now everything is out um, in the open, but I am an open book. Uh, Please, please, please come talk to me. Um, after the service, I'm totally available, but here's the deal, there's a lot of us. So uh, in effort to talk to everyone, if I have to move on from you, do not be offended. Um, I wanna take you to coffee, I wanna unpack this, but I wanna be uh, able to give everyone a chance to sort of ask questions and do that. So um, would you guys pray with me, and then we'll get started. God, um, I thank you so much for this community. I thank you so much for the leadership here. I thank you so much for the staff. Um, I thank you so much for the volunteers. I thank you so much for the people that call this place home, the people who are here for the first time. Oh, God, I pray for the people who are here for the first time. <laughs> um, God, I just, I just pray that um, as you grow us, God, that you grow us spiritually, that you grow us emotionally, that you grow us in grace, and that you grow us in empathy and in love, um, which is something that so defines our community. Um, Thank you for this morning. Amen. Amen. Um, So that's the first thing that I really want to do. I want to say thank you. And if we could, could we just give the board, the staff, the volunteers, everyone a huge round of applause? It was like three months. I... Did not expect, Uh, I was joking with them upstairs, it was like, it's like when you go to college and you come back and your parents have bought all new furniture and like a big flat screen TV and you're like, this could have happened the whole time? Anyway, um, it looks great, everything is running well and that's amazing, that's a huge point of growth for our church. The humble beginnings of our church uh, begin with conversations between my father and I, between a number of people, to start a new community, Uh, in this area that had a heart for listening to the area. I don't know if you guys know that. That's why we're called Resonate. The name Resonate wasn't just a one-letter R word, which is what most churches are these days. (laughs) What we wanted to do was actually name the church something meaningful, something that actually meant something, and the reason resonate meant something is both my dad and I are musicians. Um, and what happens, what's amazing, is if, if uh, Omid was to hit a C on that piano over there, middle C, and I was holding a guitar, and I was holding it open, and I was putting like a C chord on my guitar, and he hit a C, the note would transfer and it would resonate on the guitar and it would actually play a C too low for us to hear, but if it was loud enough, it would actually hum a C because notes hum and correspond with the responding note. Isn't that crazy? So what we wanted to do was say, what can we do to play C in our community? What can we do that will resonate with our neighbors, with the people close to us? And so we did a lot of digging, we did a lot of digging, and so my dad and I did that together, and then when my dad left and I took this over, we had to start all over again and learn to listen again. And I truly believe that's what's happening right now. Now, we're having to learn to listen all over again. I'm going to have to learn to listen all over again. I promise you. But early, early on uh, in the story, as I'm talking with my dad about this, uh, Chelsea and I, my wife Chelsea and I, met at um, this church in Agora Hills. Uh, it was in Calabasas, then it moved to Agora Hills. Uh, and that church kind of exploded. So overnight, um, I mean, first Sunday there, there were 250 people in the room. And I was like, this church plan's going to be the same, right? No. Um, so there were 250 people in the room. And then it just overnight just started to envelop and blow up and blow up and blow up. Um, But it was a church plant, and I knew the pastor, and he took me on, and he said, hey, would you be the worship leader for this? And so I was the worship leader for this, and then as the church grew, he was like, oh, can you also be the youth pastor? I heard that you were a youth intern. This is classic church planting stuff, and I was like, I am not qualified at all to be the youth pastor. He's like, your dad was a pastor. You seem to talk well, and I was like, okay, cool. I'll be the youth pastor. He's like, it also pays better. I was like, I'll definitely be the youth pastor. (laughs) So I I was the youth pastor, went to seminary there. Um, Chelsea and I got married in that community, but we just began to feel like "Uh, this isn't for us, right? I was doing the youth group, I was doing the music, I was doing the tech, I was the young 20-something-year-old that they were like, I have a computer, do you know how to use this? And it would be everything you could imagine I was doing. I was managing volunteers, I was running the small groups, I was doing all of this for 26,000 whole dollars a year, (laughs) right? And so, Chelsea and I went. I think it may be time uh, to move on to, to figure out what our next step is. And so, I started kind of putting feelers out there. Um, and we got this interview with this amazing church um, down in the South Bay. And it was another big church, and and they wanted to take me on as a as a worship leader. And we're interviewing there. And in the process of this, I'm talking to my dad, and my dad had just left his gig uh, in Marin County at a church there, and they were looking for their next steps. And if you know my father, which some of you do, um, he's like this like crazy mad hatter church planning guru thing. Like, I moved 14 times before I turned 20. That's how many times we moved as kids, moving around the country, moving around the world, starting different things. And so my parents, like every four or five years are like, do something different and like they're in their like late 50s now and they're still just like blah, 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 like going 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 and so this wasn't this wasn't weird for me i was like oh okay so you guys are done there and he's like yeah i think we're thinking about like planning a church somewhere else and i was like oh well where are you thinking and they're like we don't know yet and i had just moved to santa monica with chels and we were walking around the neighborhood and this is before some of the bigger churches had popped up and we were like there's a real need for a church here so i was talking to him and i was like you should really think about santa monica easy sell, because it's right near the beach, so he's like, I think we should, I think God is calling us to Santa Monica. <laughs> so he comes down, uh, and we're walking the neighborhood, and we're, I'm showing him all the, the restaurants, I'm showing him the community, I'm showing him what people gather around here, um, and he says, I don't think a church here is ever going to work, and then he left, and he went back up to Northern California, and then about four days later, I got a phone call, and he said, hey, remember I said a church is never going to work? And I was like, yeah, and he's like, do you want to come work for me at that church that's never going to work? <laughs> and I was like, uh, what? And he goes, well, This group called the Los Angeles Church Planting Movement has put together this this huge group of megachurches that want to see a church planted in every neighborhood, that's 118 churches in the city of Los Angeles. Some of those big churches had funneled money right into this and he said, I think with all of this support, we actually might have a chance in a place like West LA. And I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds crazy. And I was like, well, cool, how much can you pay me? And he was like, nothing. (laughs) And I went, okay file that away into the never going to happen category but it would have been cool at least my parents are going to move down but he kept pushing me and I kept going like I don't know I don't know I don't know I'd already kind of like followed down the path of the South Bay Church and then I remember it was the the New Year's of 2014 um, and we were in Palm Springs with a group of friends some of those friends are sitting here uh, in these seats and I pulled everybody into a room as I do uh, and just said like hey guys uh, we have two options on the table for this next year We've got this really safe, awesome one um, that's completely secure that would be a great career move. And then we've got this crazy one uh, that for some reason I can't let go of. For some reason I can't get it out of my head. Um, And Sean Blackwood from the back of the room just crushing an entire box of Triscuits (laughs) through Triscuits says, "You should do the crazy one? (laughs) And he said, he said, really, like and especially I don't even know if he remembers this. He probably remembers the Triscuits more than he remembers saying this. But <laughs> he said, I, that's who you guys are. And I was like, well, oh, cool, we're crazy. But yeah, he said, that's who you guys are. You, you do the crazy one. And that resonated with me so deeply, and it stuck with me. And I called my dad, and I said, hey, I think we should give this a shot. And so we followed down this path. And when my dad had to go uh, to another church, uh, and the board came to me, We were a group of like, you know, 20 some odd people. And they were like, hey, we've got funding for six months, six whole months. You wanna give this a whirl? And I was like, I got nothing better to do. (laughs) I never thought I'd be standing in front of you guys here almost four years later. It's insane. It's insane for me to think. And if you had told me the journey that I was gonna go on these past three years, especially these past two years, and especially these past three months, I don't know if my answer would have been the same, but I know I wouldn't trade it for world. What I have been through has grown me in such an incredible way with God, through God. I hit my bottom, and I did it with you guys, and I'm going to get into that a little bit later, but I hit my bottom, and I learned what it is to reach for the hand of God. There's this crazy story in the scripture um, that we often call Jesus walks on water. How many people have ever heard that Jesus walks on water? Have you heard this story before, if you've been around? Even not, you know, walks on water, it's kind of a trope that we use, right? Jesus calls out uh, in this passage, and these people are so afraid on this boat. This is a group of people that follow Jesus. They know what he's capable of, they know what he does, and they're on this boat, and then they see what looks like a ghost coming towards them. Fun fact, in the Jewish tradition, in ancient Judaism, they did not believe in ghosts. So what's funny about this is that they believed that it was a ghost before they could believe that it was Jesus, even though they'd seen him do miracles. Anyway, they see this ghost coming, and they get so afraid, and they're freaking out, as most of us would be if some apparition was walking towards us. And then Jesus just simply calls out, hey, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter, who's my favorite disciple, he's this gung-ho, like, first out the gate, like, I, I want what you have sort of a guy. And he calls out to Jesus and he says, Lord, if it's you, ask me out into the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter jumps out of the boat and he begins to walk as he's following Jesus. And then he begins to sink. And as he sinks, he cries out, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And Jesus grabs his hand and pulls him up. Now, what's amazing about this story is that we still call it Jesus Walks on Water when the real miracle here is that Peter walked on water. It's not that Jesus can walk on water. Jesus can do whatever he wants. The miracle here is that Peter got out of the boat, into the unknown, into the chaos, into the storm, into the sea, and begins to walk. And when he begins to sink, Jesus pulls him up and says, you have little faith, why did you doubt me? And the lesson here is not that Peter should have just been better if he would just been a better person, if he would just been a better Jesus follower, there wasn't even such a word as Christian at this point. If he had just been a better Christian, right? If he would just been a better Jewish person, he could have walked the whole way and dandy and go with Jesus and like, hey, here we are on the water, and then they go back to the boat and they get on together and move on. That story isn't fun at all. It would be called Jesus strolls on water if that's what it was, right? It's not fun to hear like everything went fun and dandy and I'm good, 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 good. What we love about this story is that Peter begins to sink and then Jesus grabs him and pulls him out. And then he walks him back to the boat with him. I don't think Jesus' plan was ever for Peter to make it all the way to Jesus and they go on a stroll in the Sea of Galilee, right? I think what he was trying to teach Peter is the bravest steps that you take, some of the biggest swings that you take, some of the things that are gonna scare you the most when you get out there, you might make it a little bit on your own, but you have to realize that you're never going to fully make it without my hand. And I think the most beautiful part of the Jesus tradition is that hand is always offered. And here's the deal, for months and months and months, I was reaching for something else but that hand. I was sinking, I was drowning, and I had too much pride, too much arrogance, too much I've got it all figured out. People hate our tagline, we're a church for people who don't have it all figured out. In fact, I think while I've gone, we've changed that. (laughs) That's how badly people hate it. Here's the thing. If you have it all figured out, you have no business following Jesus. Jesus is the only one who has it all figured out. And I, leading a church with that tagline, had the arrogance and pride to think, I can do this, I can do this on my own, I can beat this thing. I'm gonna take you way back now. My grandfather, um, on my dad's side, uh, was a very bad alcoholic, Uh, very bad. Mm -hmm. Um, By the time I came around, he was uh, just this kind, loving, human being, you never would have guessed that the stories had come out from him. He was a country-western singer. If you asked him what kind of music he was into, Grandpa would reply, well, both kinds, Josh, country and western. <laughs> and he traveled all around the country. He had his own radio show. He wore this big bucket hat. He had this deep, salty, sort of southern voice, and he was like low like this. I can't even do it without hurting myself. Um, and, and he was just this life of the party kind of guy. People naturally wanted to follow him. But the one problem was, his father was also an alcoholic. And so the drink got him, and so he went from this country star that could have really been something. When I was watching A Star Is Born, I was like, Grandpa, (laughs) did you win? Anyway, um, when I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, that's my grandpa. Because he he threw it all away, and he became a truck driver, which is definitely something you should do when you're drinking. Anyway, he he (laughs) became a truck driver. And I had five kids, and by the time my dad came along, he really didn't care to be a father anymore, and so he wasn't. He was just checked out. He was gone. He was abusive, both physically and verbally, and my dad had to live with that. And so as a result, my dad never, ever, ever touched a drink. And in fact, in high school, he told me, if you ever get drunk, don't ever bother coming home. That's how serious it was. If you ever have too much to drink, don't you ever bother coming home. Just leave. He's since softened. He's a nice guy now. Again, like my grandpa, they soften as they get older. Um, but that was the message that I got. And so all throughout high school, I was like, oh no, no, I'm not going to do it. And I played in bands in high school, and I was touring around the country at like age 16, 17. And I never touched it. In fact, my favorite story is uh, I was on stage one time, and we had just finished a show. And it was at this uh, club called Slims in San Francisco, if you've ever been there. Um, it's a really, really like legendary club. Like everyone's played the Grateful Dead, like, Doobie Brother. Every, everybody who came through that Bay Area scene has been there, and so it was like an honor to play. And we were opening up for Phil Lesh and the Grateful Dead, which was just like a crazy experience. Um, and we get off stage, and back then um, you would hand out flyers because everyone didn't have a smartphone. Um, so I was handing out flyers, and I get to the front, and there's this group of girls, and I'm, I'm about to hand them some flyers for our next show, and I'm like, "Thank you." And they have a water bottle, and they're like, "Hey, do you want some?" Because the band is playing, like, and then like there was and I was like. Well, it's and they're like, the water. and I'm like, oh, water. Yes, of course I want some water. I've been on stage. I've been, like, jumping around for, like, an hour. I would love some water. Take a big thing. gulp. Oh. It was pure vodka. <laughs> and I hated alcohol this much. I held it in my mouth because I was not about to swallow it. I put it in my mouth, and I went like this. Mm, mm. <laughs> and, like, a pure class act. Handed out flyers all the way back down through the thing until I got to the bathroom, and I went, blah. My teeth are probably damaged from this action, Right? And then I was 21, I had a beer, right? It wasn't a big deal. I'm legal. It's cool. And then it just slowly trickled, guys. And I've been through a lot in the last three months, but it got to the point where I had to humbly kind of come to Sean first, and then the rest of the board, and then the leadership of the church, and just tell them, guys, I don't know what to do about this anymore. I, I don't. I don't have any power over it. It's not that I wasn't getting things done, I was fine. Like, I'm, I'm what you call a high bottom. When I go to AA meetings, they're like, do you have a watch on? And you are like, what do you mean do you have a watch on? And they're like, yes, I have a watch. They're like, okay, then you're a high bottom, which basically means you still have a watch. You haven't sold everything you own. <laughs> you haven't gone into debt. You haven't done everything. But you're here, good for you. But the most humbling action of my life was realizing I can't do this alone, and I can't stop this thing, and I can't point to a moment, even though we've had trauma, which I'm going to get into, that really started this. I just woke up one day and went, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. And I'm trying my best. And part of this is going to be brutal honesty. So I'm going to be an open book. I'm going to be honest with you in every single step of the way, I promise you brutal honesty moving forward I also need your grace because 60% of this I've been telling people 50 it's actually 60% of this is genetic 40% is your surroundings only 53% of people in the United States actually classify addiction as a disease even though it is medically classified as a disease and then two the average MD only spends about two and a half hours two and a half hours talking about addiction two and a half hours. That's it. So this is a huge, wide open world and I'm diving into it and I'm learning and I haven't been closer to God since I can honestly tell you it's been the most amazing journey of my life. It's been the most amazing season of my life and it's been the hardest season of my life and that often happens. Every season that we have in life has a theme. If you look back, you can see these chunks of time that are kind of divided then you can kind of go like, wow, I'm starting to grasp what God was doing in that it has a theme and for me I try and look for a, a day like every day has a theme right so when I wake up in the morning I usually do a devotional or I read my bible or I have a quiet time with God and I just pray and I pray and I pray and recently that prayer has been like "Jesus, <laughs> help me through this day right one day at a time all the slogans but just God please help me please help me please help me and then what I try and do is I try and write down on a scrap of paper that I carry in my pocket with me all day long the theme I think the day is going to carry after that quiet time. What is God speaking to me in this moment? What am I going to carry with me through? And it's amazing because at the end of the day, I usually cross that out and something completely different has happened. Like, for instance, today, my theme is don't mess up, <laughs> and it's from God. It's, it's from the big guy, so you guys know that. Um, but I usually just end up crossing these out and going like, that's not at all what I thought it was going to be because God always seems to have a different plan than my plan. Weird, right? For instance, uh, this last week I went to, a, um, I went to a, uh, a sober living thing just to get my head in the right space to be safe while I was writing the sermon. Um, and it's more like a summer camp. I don't know if you've ever been to these places, but I, I was a youth pastor for years and when I went there I was like, this is like a this is like a youth camp. Like, they separate the guys and the girls. There's foosball tables everywhere. There's ping pong. This is a youth camp. Um, anyway, I went there, and uh, they stuck me with a roommate, and I, I told them, you know, my goal is to, uh, I need to, I need to write a sermon. I'm preparing for a couple weddings. I need to, like, I need to get, you know, just quiet. I need a quiet space to do it. And so they, um, they put me with a quiet roommate <laughs> uh, who I can't tell you his name. Uh, but he was a pro-athlete of note, and I didn't know, because if you guys know anything about me, I know nothing about sports. So this guy walks in the room, and he's carrying these golf clubs, I can tell you that much. He puts down the golf clubs, and, uh, and he says, hey, man, I'm so-and-so. Let's just call him Ben. Why not? Ben. I'm Ben. And I was like, oh, man. And the first thing I recognize about this guy is that this dude is cool. And I mean cool in the sense that, like, if there's just that type of person that you know instantly when you meet them. They're like, ha-ha, I'm going to be so awkward around you because you are really, really and cool. He had, like, this fabulous head of hair, and God, do I appreciate a good head of hair. He had, like, just, like, cool clothes. And then I walk into the closet, and because he's a pro golfer, oh, man, the thing I didn't realize about golf, the hats. And I love a good hat. He's got all of these hats, like, lined up. I mean, honestly, it was so, like, he brought his own bedspread, and I'm over there with like the one they gave me, like, was I supposed to, Oh man, like that first day of school thing where everyone's wearing the same shoes, and you're like, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> so I'm there, and he's just the coolest dude ever, and then everybody knows who he is, except for me, so we're like going out, and we really became fast friends or whatever, we're talking, his dad was actually a pastor, so we're like talking about stuff, and he's like, I'm a big man of faith, and I was like, oh, that's so awesome, and we're talking, and he's like, what are you up doing? I'm like, I'm writing a sermon, and he's like, oh, that's so cool, and he's like lining up his shots in the room, and he's like practicing and I was like, no, you're so cool. And so then we go out to eat, and we're out to eat, and the other people who are at the retreat center are like, do you know who that is? And I'm like, no, but dang it, is he cool. He's I mean, just a cool guy. Even his shampoo was cool, and I stole it. I used it. I don't even have hair. I was, like, scrubbing my beard. I'm like, this smells amazing. And then in an act of sheer honesty, because that's what you have to do in AA, I told him. I was like, dude, I stole your shampoo. I'm so sorry. And he goes, don't worry. I'm going to buy you your own bottle of that shampoo. Turns out it was only $4.99 at Target, but dang it, it was cool, right? He just had everything going on for him. He walked in the room one time, and I'm sitting there just as I am dressed now, just typing away on my sermon thing, and he looks up and he walks past the door and he just goes, Ha, how the fish today. Walks past, and I go, Ha, yeah. What did he just say to me? And then it took me 20 minutes, but I looked in the mirror and then realized, I look like a dang fisherman, right? <laughs> like, I, I, he was just so effortlessly cool. And one day, I, I'm, 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 I'm just blocked, right, because this is a big sermon, and I'm like, I don't, know what I'm, I don't know what I'm saying, and so I'm talking with him, he's talking to me, um, and I'm like, I, I, I'm a little bit blocked right now, and he's like, you know what you need to do, and I was like, I don't know what I need to do, but whatever you say, I'm game, because you are so cool, and he says, you need to go golfing, and I was like, sir, no, sir, you don't know what you're getting into if you take me golfing. It's not a good plan. I don't golf. Some of you here have been with me golfing. Sean Blackwood to this day still claims I lost two of his clubs. Untrue, saying it here, right? I'm just not a good golfer. And he goes, hey man, I've never met a person that I can't teach golf to. Let's just go, we'll go to the driving range, we'll hit a couple balls. And you'll feel better. And I was like, okay. And so I go, and I'm not lying. I like tee up, and he's he's giving me like pro lessons here. He's like, okay, you want to be shoulder with the park, like, and hold the club like you're giving it a good handshake. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. And then he steps up, and he swings, and he swings it, and man, I've never seen someone connect with something on such an effortless level. It was just like ding, and that, that that thing just sails, sails down. And I step up, just ready to get thoroughly embarrassed, follow all of his protocol, lean back very confidently and hard, take a big long swing, whoosh, expecting to hear that sweet, sweet ping, nothing looked down, the ball is still right there. (laughs) This happened about four times until finally he's like, hey, the best advice I've ever had in golf is just to slow down and keep swinging. Slow down, keep swinging. Sure enough, I slowed it down. I swung, ping, and my ball went nowhere. (laughs) But it connected, it connected. Slow down, keep swinging. So later that day, uh, this guy, Ben, had started an actual Bible study um, at the retreat. He just uh, gathered people and said, hey, if you wanna come, I'm doing a faith-based study. And so he's like, I'd really love if you would come and be a part of this Bible study tonight. Would you mind just kind of leading it out? And I was like, sure. You gave me golf lessons. I'll give you God lessons. I don't know. So I I was like, great, let's do it. And I came in, and and we talked, and we read through the Psalms together, and we shared honestly, and I shared honestly, and shared honestly about what's going on with my family, what's going on with my marriage, what's going on with my church, what's going on with my life. Some of the people... We were sharing and they started to cry, and it was just this big emotional thing. We all hugged at the end, and for the first time in months, I felt like a pastor again. And this dude comes up to me, Ben, the golfer, comes up to me and just grabs me. He says, I think you're a whole lot better pastor than you are a golfer. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, Keep swinging, though. Keep swinging. I was like, dang it, how cool is this guy, <laughs> right? Keep swinging, keep swinging. And I was able to scratch off what I thought the theme for that day was gonna be and replace it with what God had given me and the gift of that roommate and that person and going through there. It wasn't my theme for the day. God had inserted himself in my life and showed me where I needed to go step by step, minute by minute there's a season for everything. Rumi, the great poet, the great sort of ancient philosopher, has this amazing poem called The Guest House, and he just basically says that every day uh, is a new day. You wake up feeling new, and so this life is sort of like a guest house where different feelings are going to come, and they're going to rap on the door, and you're supposed to open them up, and one, treat them like a powerful stranger, which is a really cool, like unpack that later in your brain, sort of a saying, a powerful stranger, like something you're you're kind of afraid of, you don't know very well, but you're welcoming it in. And he says you're supposed to welcome it in with laughter. Whether that's joy, whether that's hardship, whether that's hurt, you're supposed to welcome it in because life is gonna bring us all sorts of craziness, craziness you never thought you were gonna have to deal with. It's gonna knock on your door and when it does, the worst thing you can do is try and shut that door because guess what, that guest isn't going anywhere and he's only getting more angry that you're not opening the door. So open the door, laugh, let them in, hang with them, and be there. Life includes everything. There's a beautiful poem by the poet laureate um, of the United States right now. Um, her name is Joyce Harjo And this poem. It goes like this, it's called Praise the Rain. It says, praise the rain, the seagull dive, the curl of plant, the raven talk. Praise the hurt, the house slack, the stand of trees, the dignity. Praise the dark, the moon cradle, the sky fall, the bear sleep. Praise the mist, the warrior name, the earth eclipse, the fired leap. Praise the backwards, upward sky, the baby cry, the spirit food. Praise the canoe, the fish rush, the hole for frog, the upside down. Praise the day, the cloud cup. Praise the flat, forget it all. What she's doing right now is just including. You think this is a nice poem about nature, right? And then it gets to this, and this is my favorite part. Praise crazy praise sad, praise the path on which you are led, praise the roads on earth and water, praise the eater and the eaten, praise beginnings, praise the end, praise the song, praise the singer, praise the rain, it brings more rain, praise the rain, it brings more rain. What I love about this poem as opposed to the roomy one where he tells you what to do is she's not telling you what to do, she's saying praise it. So if you're having a bad day, tell them Joyce Harjo said to praise the crazy, right? Praise the rain, it brings more rain. Praise the rain, it brings more rain. (coughs) Life is gonna bring us all sorts of insanity. Our greatest opportunity, our greatest ability is how we see that insanity, how we perceive it, and what we do with it. Your eyes, the way that you see the world is the most important thing. If you can look at the crazy in your life and you say, I'm gonna choose to praise that, I'm gonna choose to actually go for it with laughter, I'm gonna choose to lean into this with unbridled joy because I have a source that gives me that joy and I'm gonna push it through, then, my friends, you are a dangerous human being because nothing can stop you. How we see the world, how we perceive, how we use these eyes, truly, truly, Matters. It's all about the way that you choose to look at something. You can see something as completely desolate and on fire, or you can see something full of light. There's a word for this in Hebrew, it's called devakut. Devakut or devakut just basically means the same for light and fire. It it means you can view something as lit up and beautiful, or you can view it as burning to the ground, right? The choice is yours. Choose which way. You're going to look at it. In this experience that I've had, in this journey that I've been through, I had to learn to look at it not as God is burning the house down, but man, God's turned the lights on in my life. God is choosing to pay attention, and He's asking me to pay attention to what's going on. To pay attention because it all belongs. It all belongs. The hurt, the joy, everything is supposed to be in there. There's a beautiful rabbinic story about Moses encountering the burning bush. And some of us know this story. There's this bush that's on fire, and Moses encounters the bush. And the bush, God speaks to the bush and says, Moses, and he gives him a plan. He's this fugitive of the law, this person who's murdered someone, who's run out and started a whole new fugitive life, a whole new, whole new second life for himself. And he says, hey, I want you to go back to the pain. I want you to go back to the hurt. I want you to go back to the thing that initially crushed you. And I want you to go back with me. And it's this beautiful story of redemption and liberation and he frees slaves and it's amazing. So it's the whole story of scripture is all about and it's in the second book in the dang Bible. <laughs> about liberation right but here's the thing god doesn't come in a forest fire or a giant helicopter because he knows what technology is going to (laughs) exist he doesn't come in a screaming person he comes in a bush that's on fire just enough that the whole thing isn't burning down and so what the rabbis would say is how many times do you think that moses just walked by this bush because essentially moses was on his morning commute Moses was just watching his flock day by day, right? We're all in the grind. He's going to work. He's buckling up. He's getting into traffic. He's sipping on that coffee. He's listening to whatever podcast or music or something in the car. He's drowning out the feelings. He's trying to just distract himself, right? I got to get through the day. I got to get through this work day. I got to get home so I can eat. and I can... Wah, wah. How many times did he just pass that bush by? Oh, that's on fire. I should probably move away from it, right? That's the general thought. Instead, Moses chose to pay attention, and as a result, we have liberation. He chose to pay attention. He chose to let that belong in his life. He chose to scribble down something on his day, which wasn't just, I will finish my work day, but he chose to say, I will be open to whatever God has for me today, no matter how complicated it is, no matter how crazy, I will listen, I will pay attention, I will act. Even if it hurts, I will use it. Because that's what God is calling me to do. There's another beautiful poem, and this one comes out of scripture, this is Psalm 6. I've read this every day since I've been on break, and I've been trying to get better. Um, Psalm 6. and. This one's kind of depressing. Please, God, no more yelling, no more trips to the woodshed. Treat me nice for a change. I'm so starved for affection. Can't you see I'm black and blue, beat up badly in bones and soul? God, how long will it take you to let up? Break in, God, and break up this fight. If you love me at all, get me out of here. I'm no good to you dead, am I? I can't sing in your choir if I'm buried in some tomb. I'm tired of all this, so tired. My bed has been floating 40 days and 40 nights on the flood of my tears. This is written by David. He's a very dramatic human being. <laughs> my mattress is soaked. Gross. Soggy with tears. and sockets, my eyes are black holes. Also gross. Nearly blind. I squint and grope. Now, here's the weird ADD part of this. There's no transitional period right here, right? <laughs> He doesn't say, and then I took a walk and everything felt better. He doesn't say like, oh, then I just drew a nice bath and my mind changed. No, all we have here is just a quick change from my mattress is soaked, I'm floating on a bed of tears, to this. Get out of here, you devil's crew. He's not blaming God anymore. Now he's blaming the devil. At last, God has heard my sobs. My requests have been granted. My prayers are answered. Cowards, my enemies disappear. Disgrace, they turn tail and run. This is King David. David. Known as a man after God's own heart. Now, I want to pose this question to you. Imagine if you asked a pastor to write something out, to come and guest speak somewhere, and they write something like that. (laughs) Do you think they'd be invited back to speak again? (laughs) Right? We want that last little line there. We want there, get out of this devil's crew. God has heard my cry. We want that rah, 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 rah. That's the very last line of the Psalms the very last line. The rest is heartache. It's hurt. It's real. It's emotion. It's actually what's going on. David is being honest. I'm a king. I have all these people to take care of, and I don't know what to do. I am distraught. And that's in there. (laughs) The writers of Scripture keep that. They don't go, ooh, you know what? Get the messy stuff out of David's story because we just want to make him look good. No. Over 70% of the Psalms, 70% are what are called laments, which are, God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? What's going on? I've messed up. I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm going to die. These are laments. And there's 70% of them. Guess how many CCLI songs, which are worship songs that we sing in church every Sunday, are made off of a song of lament? <laughs> if you've guessed zero, your answer is absolutely correct. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. And yeah, we all want to hear that. Outside of church, we're obsessed with people crashing and burning. <laughs> we want to click on that all day long. Ooh, we're going to get them now, right? Cancel culture. They're canceled, <laughs> right? We love that stuff outside of here. And yet, for some reason, in our churches, we're not able to be that open. Even though our tradition, our Bible, our songs, the greatest poetry we have, is all about really living life and actually going for it. It's all in there. And I originally really resonated with this song because I felt beat up by God. We lost a child this year. My brother almost died twice. I had like three stomach ulcers. I developed a drinking problem. My marriage got hurt. My family got hurt. My church almost got hurt. My friends got hurt. I felt in that moment like, what heck is going on I'm supposed to I'm supposed to have answers I'm supposed to be able to figure this out I'm supposed to have the tools to do this and yet I feel farther and farther away from you where are you that's 70% of the Psalms and when I realized that I realized I'm growing in the grand tradition of questioning things to find a beautiful answer you will not find that beautiful answer without taking that hard journey, without taking that hard step, without the 70% of the Psalms. We often think we're always supposed to be on the mountaintop. I got news for you. There's very little real estate on a peak. <laughs> you can't build a home on a peak. You got to build your home somewhere in the valley. Not literally. Please, guys, don't move to the valley on me, okay? <laughs> you got to build your home in the valley. Because that's where real life is done. We have these mountaintop moments. Those are beautiful, but that's not the whole story. The whole story is that you get to look up at something and say, one day I'm going to get there. And then when you're up there, you get to see the next mountaintop and you get to say, one day I'm going to get there. But man, do I know what's going to go on when I have to go back down there. But you know what? I'm ready for it. Because I believe in a God that's working. I believe in a God that's growing. And I believe in a God that's growing me. It's about perception. It's about seeing that stuff. And there's room for more than just happy, happy, go, go, joy, joy, joy within our churches. There's room for more than happy in your life. Did you know that the Pascal mystery, which is what we call this communion thing, this broken bread, this body that's broken for you, this blood that's poured out for you, does that sound very happy to you, <laughs> right? This Pascal mystery, the word that it comes from in the Greek, the word that it comes from in the Hebrew, both can mean pasa, it means it means limping and dancing limping and dancing. So when we approach the table, we can limp to the table. Some of us are doing that, and some of us are dancing. And you know what's unique about someone who's limping and someone who's dancing, when they come together, they help each other. The dancer gets to help the limper, the limper gets to help the dancer, because I don't want people twirling around in here, right? (laughs) The limper gets to help the dancer, the dancer gets to help the limper, and we all approach the table, which is a place for broken people place for broken people to become whole. If no one's ever told you that in church, I'm so deeply sorry. It's not some crazy, just little tradition where we have a snack. Something really holy and crazy goes down when we encounter the elements here, when we encounter the body broken for you, the blood poured out for you. It's the most beautiful thing we do as a community, and Jesus actually calls it to do it every single time we gather together. He says, do this and remember me, remember me, remember all of it. Don't just remember the good times we had? Remember the craziness that I went through? Remember the cross? Remember all that craziness? It all belongs. It all belongs from the miracles to the death to the miracle. Everything in it belongs. It's all about the, ch- the way that you choose to see it. The way that you choose to see it. For instance, um, let's talk about hummingbirds. Some of you love hummingbirds. Do we have a picture of a hummingbird? Some of you are crazy enough to put feeders for hummingbirds in your backyard. <laughs> and they come and they visit you. Now you see a beautiful little fluttery bird here. I see a weaponized vehicle with a tiny beak that could kill you if it wanted to. And the reason I see that is because one day my little puppy was just this little tiny tyke. Hi, Duke, good, he's asleep, that's a good sign. just a little tiny tyke, we have a dog uh, that is actually illegal in our building, which means he can't be there, and if he's found out, like, we'll get fined. And so he's like this little guy, and he's barking at everything imaginable, and we're just trying to, like, muzzle him, like, quiet, 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 like, we're smuggling something or something like that. But, like, we had to, like, muzzle him, we had to keep him quiet. So this is why this dog is so spoiled, because every time he would bark, he'd be like, get him a treat or something, we're going to lose him. So, like, he just knows, like, I know how to work these humans, so he'll bark. Um, But I'm coming up the stairs with my little dog, and... He's just learned to climb the stairs, it's adorable, so I'm staring at him and he's like "Mm," pulling up the stairs. And uh, I get to the top of the stairs and I look up and on the fire hydrant, we have this like apartment building if you've ever been to our place, it's like this tiny little narrow staircase that goes up and then there's a fire hydrant right there and then there's our door. Literally right next to it. And on the fire hydrant, I see this beautiful little hummingbird. It's just like this little thing. I was like, oh, would you look at that? It's like a little cute hummingbird and stuff. I don't know if you've ever heard a hummingbird get territorial. It's a frightening experience. This bird started rapid firing chirping like it was gonna do something and as a result, my dog starts barking very, very, very loudly at the hummingbird and they're having like a bark off, sound off, call the wild sort of thing and I'm like stuck in the middle and meanwhile, my landlord is pulling up outside the building in his truck and I'm like, oh my god, we gotta get inside. So we get inside and meanwhile Baloo, our dog, is still barking because he knows that hummingbird is on the other side and I am scared to death, one, of being fined for my dog, two, losing my dog, and three, I'm pretty dang scared of this hummingbird. So the hummingbird is still chirping like crazy and you can hear it through the door. My dog is still barking and I'm like, oh my god, what am I gonna do? I call Chels, I'm like, there's a hummingbird outside. Um, she's like, that's awesome, and I was like, it would be, uh, but I think we're gonna lose our dog. So we're, I'm talking to her, we're figuring it out, I hang up, I don't get many answers, thanks a lot, Chels. I'm moving towards, and I'm like, how am I gonna figure this out, what's gonna happen? Because if the landlord hears the dog, everything's gonna go, and, uh, and I just came to the conclusion, I'm, I'm gonna have to kill this hummingbird, <laughs> right? So I, I grab a mop, and I'm like, I'm ready. <laughs> This is gonna be weird, but I gotta kill this thing. So I get a mop, open up the door, and uh, open up the door, and this thing starts rapid fire, chirp, 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 and I'm grabbing the mop, and then I realize in my heart, I'm like, I can't kill this hummingbird. (laughs) So I shut the door, and I'm like, a new plan, gotta figure out a new plan. So I Google, are hummingbirds dangerous? Uh, And this is what I find. um, uh, The dark side of hummingbirds. (laughs) Um, and it says, welcome, friend, I hope you enjoy this site, and then again, welcome, friend, I hope you enjoy this site, which trues, I'm in the right place, um, Dark Side of Hummingbirds. This guy wrote an entire article trying to prove that hummingbirds are wrong, and at the end he says, and I just couldn't do it. They're, they're beautiful creatures, and they're like, that's not the answer that I wanted. So I go to the comments section, and I see comments like this. Cute article, my son and I saw a couple of hummingbirds actively flying around each other, perhaps a mating ritual, while watering our flowers. And as they were visiting the plants, they began to dive bomb us. <laughs> Their interest in us was quite short-lived, but entertaining. And needless to say, we went on to water a different part of the yard, lol, <laughs> right? I did not want a dive bomb situation, right? I've got a little dog. And then, so upon, I could read all of these, but you can see them. Um, Except for this one. Hard to believe my seven-year-old mom was a part of a mating ritual. We won't get into that. But anyway, um, <laughs> turns out hummingbirds can do some damage if they want to. They go for the eyes, is what I heard. They go for the eyes. So I went in, I put on sunglasses, I come back out with a mop, and I just start swinging the mop, and it starts running, and it's fluttering, like, all around me. And I'm j- I mean, if someone walked up, it was just ridiculous. I was holding my dog here with one thing, swinging a mop with the other, and sunglasses like some crazy person. And the thing finally flies out and goes away. So it's about perception, right? I view hummingbirds as dangerous. Other people love them. I think that they are very, very dangerous, but it's all about the way that we perceive and see the world. It's all about the way we perceive and see the world. There's no greater teacher for this than one of my favorite artists, and her name is um, Sister Mary uh, Corita Kent, and this is her. Um, Sister Mary Corita Kent is this incredible pop artist from the 1960s and 70s all the way through the 80s. Um, She was a devout, devout nun, a devout Christian lady uh, who worked at the Immaculate Heart School and she was the head of the art department there. And what she would do is she read uh, in the scriptures. she read this verse from Paul and Paul was talking to these group of Gentiles and, and he's talking to this group of Gentiles and he begins to look at their idols, their statues, their gods, and he says, hey, I know you have these gods, um, but let me, let me show you how I think this god represents this to me. And then he kind of uses their language to like present God in a new way to them, to present Jesus and to say, like I have a name for this. And so she said, oh, that's what art should be. Art should be something where we see something in the common language so we can take it and we can show God in a different way to people. And so what she would do is she would do these silk screens and she would take actual advertisements and she would blow them up. And then she would create religious art, which has since become like, not a great thing, but this was amazing. She would take this, and if you see these artist things, you're like, this could be in something today. This is a Wonder Bread wrapper that she took, and then she would write poetry on the bottom. We, can we just scroll through these? That'd be great. Um, this, is an, uh, this was an actual advertisement for canned fish, and she took that, and she included Fisher of Men. I don't know if you get, what, what and symbol is that? Does anybody know? Nailed it, see? So she took the, she took the language of the day and she began to make art with it because she thought this is the way that people speak anyway. Here's another Wonder Bread one, and so on. Another Wonder, she really liked Wonder Bread. Another Wonder Bread one, right? It's the way that we see it. And this stuff stands the test of time because she saw advertisements, something we view as garbage, and said, hey, I can flip this and I can make it beautiful. In fact, she did hated the word art for what she did. She said, what I do is I make the common uncommon. She said, uncommon is what I'm after in everything that I do. Uncommon is art to me. Common, uncommon, ordinary, extraordinary. You know the only difference between ordinary and extraordinary is an extra look at it. Ordinary, extraordinary, extra look. There's another children's author, I'm blanking on her name, but she said, uh, if you want to figure out or discern what you need to do with your life, pay attention to what you pay attention to, and your answer is right there. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. What are you using these eyes for? What are you paying attention to? What are these spheres in your head grabbing that other people can't see that maybe you could show them? Your unique imprint on the world, the thing that you're gonna do that's gonna change everything for those around you is the unique way that you see the ordinary. It's your extra look that's going to change someone's mind. It's your extra look that you have to offer the world. No one else sees it the way that you do. And maybe you see it in an incredibly beautiful, awesome way that we need to see. So please, by all means, share it. Come out with it. Show it. Make the common uncommon for me. I want to see things in a different way. I want to look at a Wonder Bread package and go, wow, I never saw what you saw in that. That's what God is trying to do with us every day. Jesus was a master at this. You think it's this way? I'm saying it's this way. Boom, flip it on its head. All of a sudden, we're following this guy that's turning the ordinary into extraordinary. That's healing people's eyes with things like mud and spit, things that were ordinary, things that were gross, things that were blah, he's bringing healing out of. Jesus doesn't get enough credit for being a genius. (laughs) right? Smart. We often check our intelligence at the door when we come in here and we think it's all spirit and all faith. Jesus was one of the smartest human beings to ever live in what he did. That's why we're still catching up with him and studying what he's doing. Here's a story that really resonated with me, and it's the story of the prodigal son. And I think the story of the prodigal son is one of the most common stories in the Bible. How many of you have heard the story of the prodigal son? Awesome. It's sort of like a, it's a cultural thing at this point, right? We even say like for someone who's gone wayward, they're a prodigal son. Um, The thing with the prodigal son is we named it that. God never named it that. We named this story the story of the prodigal son, not God. Interesting, right? So what I want to do is I want to break this down. This is like the last thing we'll do. I'll I'll break this down um, for you in a way because this story really resonated with me. I felt like a prodigal. I felt like someone who had blown it. I felt like someone who had gone far and I felt like there was no room for me back. And, and what we need to focus on this is this could be called, again, it's all about perception, it's all about the way you're using these eyeballs, right? This could be called the prodigal son. This could be called the story of the lost son, which is sometimes called. How about the story of the loving father, right? How about the story of the, the misunderstanding brother or the stubborn brother? How about the story of the missing mom? <laughs> Where's mom in this story? We have a mom, we have no prodigal. That's all I'm saying, right? Where's the mom? How about the story of the enterprising son? The story of the son with different ideas. How about the son who didn't get along with his family? How about the father who breaks all cultural norms to take him back? These are all titles that we could have for this. So let's just go through this. Jesus said a certain man had two sons. Now, please look at this. Oftentimes, when Jesus is telling a parable, the main character is the first character that he speaks of. And this is a trope. It's a comic rabbinical thing. You would set up a story with the main character is always the person that you say first. Who is the main character in this story? There's a man who had two sons. The main character in the story is not the prodigal son. It's the father. It's the man. So the man who has two sons, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them. Let's do some low-hanging fruit here. You've probably heard this before, but that is the equivalent of telling your father, "I wish you were dead. Give me my money now." It is culturally unheard of. Jesus' like day. If you read this out loud, if he, if he said this, people would have gone, <gasps> right? It's it's just a cultural slap in the face. No one did that. No one asked for that. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extraordinary, extravagant living. Extravagant. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. I'd really like to point this out. It's something I never noticed before. Does it say anything in here about him squandering it on sinful living? on terrible, terrifying deeds. The way that I was taught this in Sunday school was he went to Vegas and did everything you're not supposed to, right? And that may be true, yeah. But extravagant, extraordinary. What we have here is a son sitting in a perfectly good life under his father the way everybody else did it. And we have a son with an ego large enough to say, this isn't good enough for me. I want something extravagant. I want something extraordinary. I want something bigger than what you have to offer. And ladies and gents, that is just as sinful as going and squandering your living on everything that Vegas has to offer. To tell God, I want something bigger than what you have to offer. I don't need you. I want extraordinary. I want extravagant. I want it all right now, right now here, which by the way, if any of you have ever struggled with addiction, that's exactly what that is. I don't want that hand, I want this. I want it now, right in front of me. So the sun goes off and he squanders it. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed his pigs. He longed to, feel, uh, to eat his fill from that... Uh, what the pigs ate but no one gave him anything when he came to his senses he said how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food but i'm starving to death i will get up and go to my father and say to him father i have sinned against heaven and against you i no longer deserve to be called your son take me on as one of your hired hands so he got up and he went to his father While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, he hugged him, he kissed him, and the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because the son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. Coming from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant replied, your brother has arrived and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in, but his father came out and begged him. He, he answered his father, look, I've served you all these years and I never disobeyed your instruction, yet you never given me so much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returned, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, now we're getting to the sin part, <laughs> uh, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. When his father said, son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and alive, and, and, and is alive. He was lost and now is found. I came to this profound realization through reading this through multiple times on my break that oftentimes we point towards that son and we say we're supposed to be like the son, we're supposed to go back, right? We're supposed to feel that forgiveness and all of that is wonderful and it's beautiful and it's true and I affirm it. But I realized my role model in the story is not the son, it's not the brother. The person I wanna be like, the person I wanna most be like is the father. That's our goal, to be the type of person that opens their arms and says, shh, shh, I get it. I get you saying, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. Now just come here. The most interesting part about this uh, that we just kind of skipped through is that they put a robe on him and a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and we often just kind of go like, oh, cool, he's getting a costume to go to the party, right? He's dressing well. The word for exile in Hebrew is gala. Which means naked or exposed. Gala means naked or exposed. So when the father puts clothes on his son, a ring on his finger, and sandals on his feet, he says, You are no longer in exile, you are home. Culturally, without saying a word, he's clothed him. And he knows, he's clothed to him. He says, you're not in exile, you're home. Because what you're bringing with you into here, all that shame, all that hurt, all that stuff that's going to keep you over there, I don't want that in here. I want you. I want all of you. I don't want you coming in with all that craziness here. Here's the rope. Take away the shame. Understand the sin is forgiven. But don't carry that shame when you have forgiveness. In the Garden of Eden, God does the same thing. They take the fruit, they eat it. He says, what have you done? Now you have to be in exile. The first thing he does is he clothes them. As if to say, you're not naked, you're not exposed, you're not shamed. Don't carry shame. Understand sin is a real thing, and you're going to have to reckon with that, and that's going to suck. But man, I don't want this shame thing hit you. I don't want this guilt. I don't want you carrying that. You're no good to me with this shame. You're clothed. You're home. Understand that I care about you. Understand that I love you, but man, yeah, there's a lot of separation going on, and we're going to have to reckon with that. I was going to talk about Domino's Pizza, but I don't have time, so could you get up and play a little something on the piano? <laughs> His cue is Domino's to come up, and I was like, I'm not going to be able to fit that in. I don't want that shame. I don't want that guilt. And so, I uh, over this past week, and you know, as I was in Palm Springs doing this doing this silver retreat thing, and um, I I sat there wrestling with uh, I don't know what God wants for me because I was wrestling with all of the deep amounts of shame um, that I had. Prodigal son thing, like. <laughs> Resonated with me so deeply because I actually had to make an amends to my father. I had to say, I'm sorry, Dad, for doing this, 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 this. this." And y'all are going to get an amends. There's a thing called step nine. So if I hurt you in any way, (laughs) you'll be hearing from me. (laughs) But I had to step back. and I had to go, I'm wrestling with all this shame. I'm wrestling with all this hurt. I don't know what I have to offer. My eyes aren't working right now. I don't know what I'm seeing. I don't know if it matters. Everything that I see seems to get me in trouble, Right? So, I'm journaling and I'm journaling and I'm writing to God and I'm saying, I really, really, really want this to work out, God. I really, really, really miss my life. I want to recover. I want to get better. Would you please, please heal me? Would you please heal my eyes? Heal the way that I see things. Heal the way that I do things. And my journal's up here and I'm rereading it and I open my eyes and I'm reading it and I put the journal down and I'm not lying right there. There's a freaking hummingbird. (laughs) I'm not gonna lie it scared me out of the chair and I jumped but the hummingbird just sort of lifted and then for one second and then it went right down to a flower that was right next to me and I got a picture of it and I went wait a minute I'm supposed to be paying attention I'm writing a sermon about paying attention I'm writing a sermon about the way that my eyes work and I'm dealing with an animal that goes for the eyes That moment, I realize God still wants to see through me. He wants me to see through him. No matter what you have done, no matter how hard you think you've fallen, the way you see the world still genuinely matters. The world needs that. They need more of you, not less of you. The more you retreat, the more you let the world beat you down, the more you get caught in that shame stuff, but less and less and less, you're able to pay attention to what God is doing right in front of you. Let's pray together. God, I pray for this church. I pray for our time. I pray that you would let us lean into being a community where everything belongs, where all the hardship belongs, where all the good belongs, where all the limping and dancing can fuse together, can be one, because we're all here as a part of the same crazy journey that you put us on called life. Amen. So in the beginning of this whole journey, I was reading Psalm 6, which is under your, your chairs, all of you, and I was reading this front half, this wrinkled, crazy one, and I was going, this is all I have to resonate with. God, stop beating me up. And then I started resonating way more as I got better, as I got better and better and better. I started resonating way more with this. My enemies disappear, turn tail. And I went, oh, this is where I want to live. Get rid of this, (laughs) right? But the truth is that's not God's hope for any of us. Our hope is that these two come together and that we hold them both, that everything belongs everything so what i want us to do this morning is to an exercise in saying everything belongs and you're going to take both of these sheets of paper and you're going to come to this table right here and you're going to tape these two together to say that i carry the hurt the junk the crap and i carry the goodness the hope the beauty and i know god is big enough to hold them both and then that's yours to keep and you can put it wherever you'd like um but, yeah, if we'd stand. We're just going to approach the table. This is the body broken for you, as we explained earlier. This is the blood poured out for you. This is the most important thing we do here. So approach this table. Take your time here. You can dunk this hala into, um, into the cup. Experience what God is doing. Uh, this is also where we take all communication I know there are going to be some comment cards today, (laughs) so comments in here, if you want to grab coffee, I'm open, put it in here, I'd love to talk to you, Um, all the communication is going to go through this box right here on both sides, Um, you can also do your tithes, your offerings, your generosity makes this whole thing tick, so uh, if the front row wants to come forward, and then we'll kind of go splitsies and around, and then if you guys could come loop around like that, that'd be awesome, but come approach, and then the tape is right here.